And welcome to episode three of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast called How We Got Here, BMI Meets Death. I'm your host, Fiona Willer, weight neutral professional development dietitian, academic and size acceptance advocate. This episode, I'll take you on a journey through time, looking at how BMI became the measure of choice for body mass and the key plays in how we ended up in hysterics about the health and death of people in larger bodies. The learning outcomes for today's podcast are to recognise the historical context of the relationship between BMI and health recommendations, to identify the key players in setting the agenda for weight centrism, and to appreciate the statistical characteristics of childhood growth charts and BMI risk charts. So today our story has a few main characters. Firstly, it's got the dude who developed the BMI equation in the late 1800s, Adolf Quietlet, a formula that standardised weight for any given height, so essentially height standardised heaviness. We all come in different heights and we can't manipulate our height, so the Quietlet index allowed body size to be compared across people of different heights using numbers which are not too difficult to understand, so two or three digits. It's an easy way to see how this became a really attractive thing to use. Also, uh, another character, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, who published early data about height, weight, age and sex and its influence on age at death in 1959. And they were the first to name their group averages normal, then standard and then ideal. Ansel Keys, who seems to have had his finger in a lot of scientific pies, um, he advocated during the 70s for the Quetelet Index to be renamed body mass index and for it to supersede the tables because it made it easier for statistical analysis and reporting. Then we've got the World Health Organization or WHO upon whose determinations many nations take their direction for their own guidelines. And finally the International Obesity Task Force now called the World Obesity Policy and Prevention. Um, It was a think tank formed in 1995 made up of scientific research and medical professionals who have the goal of eradicating obesity via prevention Uh, reduction and treatment, i.e. it's very weight-centric. They decided in 1997 that the adult overweight category should be called pre-obese and in the late 2000s that the childhood overweight category would henceforth be called obese uh, and the formerly at-risk-of-overweight category be called overweight. So, in general, we've got a situation where over the last 80 years or so, we've gone from observations in order to reduce hunger to observations between weight, height and death to further and further pathologization of higher body weights at lower and lower points, collectively increasing the number of people who are targeted by weight loss guidelines, concurrently with a shift in the population towards genuinely high weights as well. All roads have led to further weight centrism and panic about larger bodies. The history of the science of anthropometrics, which is the study of the human body, fed and was fed by the concurrent development of statistical methods of analysing and reporting large amounts of data points. Once we had a valid way to measure things like height and weight, we needed valid ways then to report those measurements and try to figure out what they meant. Uh, and the, the um, that it needed to be more simple than the use of these immense tables filled with data. So Adolf Quitlet 
who lived between 1796 and 1874. He was a Belgian statistician who applied the newly minted concepts of mean and standard deviation. So mean is another word for average. And standard deviation is a measure of spread in the data. He applied those new concepts to anthropometrical data, or the measurement of human being data, and developed the uh, what he called the Quetelet Index in 1869. Um, he was the first to investigate the statistical properties of anthropometry, even though he wasn't a physician himself. But I'll come back to him a bit later. If we fast forward now through to the early 19th century, when close focus began to be paid towards the growth of children, from the perspective of being able to know whether a child was eating enough for optimal growth, because they were worried about malnourished and therefore weak children, who they feared would grow up to a weak, disease-prone, unproductive adults, i.e. Not, not good for the country. Childhood growth can be measured in heaps of different ways. So maturity measured by numerical age, years since previous growth milestone or degree of bone plate ceiling, which you can measure by looking at a wrist x-ray, and then various combinations of weight, height, limb length, circumference of various parts, and also the velocity of speed of growth of those various things. There's so many different ways that you can look at um, the growth of human beings uh, during their childhood. Today we've settled upon using height, weight and BMI by age with head circumference used additionally for infants up to two years old. So first devised in the 18th century, these growth charts are now used as a way to check if a child is growing appropriately. So red flags are raised if a child's growth accelerates across lines in an upward direction or falls across lines in a downward direction. It's a population over time graph with a line in the middle which splits the population into two equal halves. So half of the kids in the group are above the line and half are below. Because of the way that measurements in similar populations tend to coalesce in the middle, if you sliced it at any time point, so at any age, so if you sliced it across the five-year mark and turned that piece sideways, you'd see a cross-section that looks a bit like a single peak mountain. So in some populations, it's normally distributed where it's even on both sides. But in regular human populations, we tend to skew to the right, which means we skew, um, there are more people... Um, distributed to the right-hand side in the heavier categories um, from the uh, the actual average mark. So <clears throat> the percentile numbers that we use in growth charts are slightly different depending on what type of uh, chart you're using. It could be the mean or the median as its middle point, but essentially they're meant to be read from the bottom up. So the third percentile, as it's called, marks the point at which 3% of the kids of that age falls below. 50% um, is the halfway point, as I said before, and by the 97 percentile for any given age, 97% of the kids that, that were collected in that data set uh, fell below that weight for their age or that BMI for their age. The growth curves themselves for kids don't say anything about disease risk. That's not that what they're for at all. The point is to try to chart children's growth over time to see that it is going uh, optimally. So the main charts we use are two types. There's types from the CDC, the Centers of Disease Control in America, uh, which use data from a 1963 to 1994 um, data set, noting that less than 100 infants per age group were used in the birth to six month cohorts for that group. So it's not actually massive. 
Um, it's considered a growth reference because it's tied to a specific population and time. Most infants in that group uh, were formula fed, for example, so they're different from, they're likely to be different in growth velocity from populations who are breastfed, and we found that that is the case. The other type is the World Health Organization charts, the WHO charts. They're regarded as growth standards, so they um, depict healthy growth in a healthy population and those charts are compiled from data that were collected between 1997 and 2003 in six sites across the world um, who had the capacity to collect that data and systems to support breastfeeding um, in that uh, study populations. The mothers in the studies that are used for the WHO charts were actively counselled to follow the breastfeeding guidelines. So these infants were mostly breastfed, full term, not for impoverished or smoking households. So they were looking for the healthiest um, kids to start with to see what their growth was like. Also larger kids who um, otherwise were uh, still included in the study were excluded if their weight fell more than two standard de deviations from the median the middle weight um, value they were purposefully less left out of that data because the WHO didn't want to skew it in an unhealthy direction maddeningly they report that this led to a 2.7 percent of the participants that were otherwise eligible to be excluded in that study so that number doesn't seem like a lot but it has had the effect of skewing that 97 percentile line uh, down. So if all of the data were taken into account, you know, that they've assumed that these larger kids are already unhealthy without checking if they were, um, that sort of had the effect of bringing that line down. Um, it was observed in that data set that childhood growth data wasn't exactly normally distributed. So it wasn't exactly to that bell curve shape. Um, but using modern statistical methods, they now depict growth charts as having a normal distribution so that standard, standard deviations fit the percentiles in an okay fashion. So it's not great. I mean, it's okay in a population level, but at an individual level, these things become problematic. So both the CDC and the WHO chart sets include ones for BMI, which is what we're talking about today. The BMI in, is in the charts for kids that are two years old and over. The CDC charts use percentiles around the median, while the, WHO, the WHO charts use percentage expressions of the standard deviations around the mean. And all of the lines in both sets of charts are not tied to health outcomes, as I said before. Those health outcomes, or like risks, are only tied to the adult BMI categories. And using means and standard deviations means that the childhood charts can be pretty easily smooshed into the, um, BM, the adult BMI charts. So in that time between you going to sleep and waking up on your 20th birthday, your BMI, without actually having changed, may be recategorized from normal to problematic. Happy birthday. <laughs> and now to the importance of detail. So the data that makes up the charts for kids 2 to 20 years is predominantly made up of cross-sectional data. So snapshots in time of different kids, not snapshots of the same kids across time. So while they can give us an indication of average um, height, weight and, weight and BMI in a particular um, age, they can't depict normal changes to velocity of growth in an individual. And in general, one of the things I'm really interested in is in the way that widely reported group statistics are translated down to and how they impact individuals and their families. The problem being that actually very few people are average at the detail level. 
So I wondered about growth spurts and I went on a bit of a um, exploration into that data. A study by Tanner and colleagues published in 1965 using data from kids in Oxford and London between 1946 and 1954 showed both the diversity and elegance of growth patterns during adolescence. So instead of cross-sectional data, they charted the growth of individuals across time, allowing the observation of growth in height and weight over childhood and adolescence. This is a really foundational study that continues to be highly cited today. They found that during the years between 11 and 17, for each teenager, there will be a th three years of particularly high growth speed. Up, to, up until then, they're growing at about 5 centimetres a year, but in the first of these fast years, they'll grow 8 to 10 centimetres, reaching a peak of 12 centimetres a year in the middle year, and then back to 8 to 10 centimetres again in that final super growth period, or the growth spurt. Weight gain is similar. The weight spurt, it will happen between the ages of 11 and 17 again, with most of the action happening in a three-year period where regular gains of 2 to 3 kilos a year turn into 2 to 3 years of 6 to 12 kilogram increases in a very steep curve that's pretty similar in shape to the height curve. But here's the clincher. Weight and height peak growth periods do not necessarily happen at the same time. Some kids get tall before they fill out and others fill out before they get tall. And because it's staggered over adolescence, the curve depicted in those growth charts don't represent the normal or non-pathological experience of an individual's growth. So these days, a child experiencing their weight spurt prior to their height spurt would potentially be seen as problematic, particularly if they were in the heavier centiles to start with during their younger childhood. The only way to tell if a child has had a weight or height spurt, as opposed to a more potentially pathological increase in weight, is retrospectively, so at the end of their 17th year. For all children, including those who have existed in the wilds of the space above the 97th centile throughout their childhoods, efforts to decrease weight have the real potential to stunt height growth potential. Kids tend to lose that height growth velocity. They slow down in the speed that they're gaining height before they lose weight when insufficient nourishment is consumed, regardless of their starting weight. Bigger kid uh, is not eating enough, they will stop growing taller before they actually start to lose weight. In 1997, a consensus panel decided to term that 85th to 95th percentile of kids' growth at all ages, by the way, as at risk of overweight. That's a label that was given. And then for kids above the 95th percentile, that was termed as overweight. Now, note that they are very adult terms and they only exist because we've pathologized weight in adults. Um, prior to that, all growth at all percentiles, as long as it was along the lines-ish, was seen as fine. So, <clears throat> interestingly, so that was 1997. By 2007, those categories had been renamed overweight and obese. So shifting the terminology, kids that were previously thought of as well, first they were thought of as normal and then they were thought of as at risk of overweight and now being labelled as overweight. And those above the 97th percentile, formerly thought of as normal, uh, then thought of as overweight, had then been named obese by 2007. Now moving on to adults. Before anyone started talking about an obesity epidemic, it was recognised that there was a relationship between both much higher and much lower body weight and earlier death from any cause. 
This relationship was recorded initially by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in the US when trying to calculate appropriate premiums for their um, insured people. Of course, interesting that money and weight were linked so early. So they had access to information from about 4 million adults that was collected between 1935 and 1953, mostly from white men who had life insurance policies uh, with 26 different insurance companies. And the information they had about them included their height and weight at a particular age, their age at death, information about some of the diseases they suffered from and a few other body measurements. And the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company published this information in 1959 in the form of tables of average weight for height for different age groups and sex. So later on during the 1960s, you could look up your height, age, sex and build type, so small, medium or large based on elbow width, and see the average uh, deemed ideal weight for you. If you were 10% above that average weight, you were deemed overweight, and at 20% above, you were deemed obese. And it's relevant to note that these tables used selected humans from similar socioeconomic backgrounds, doing similar jobs in a particular time in history, really far before exercise as a hobby came into vogue. So their body composition may well have been similar enough that BMI appeared to be an okay measure of it. These days, lifestyle vary greatly from totally sedentary to highly active across all points in the BMI scale. It's not an accurate proxy for body composition or physical uh, fitness anymore. Actual population weight trends weren't investigated until the 1960s. So while the association between higher weight and ill health was apparent from, from some fairly large uh, studies, it wasn't known whether the phenomenon played out for the general population or even what the BMI landscape of the general population actually was. Around this time, Ansel Keys was one of the most influential figures in having the tables replaced by what we now call the BMI. So he saw the Quetelet's equation as useful as it essentially standardised weight against height and he renamed it the body mass index. He calling for one set of BMI standards for all of adulthood from about age 20 to age 65 and that instantly vanished the relevancy of sex and age group in that data. So remember that the weight taken to form these data sets is typically taken at one time over a person's entire adult life so it's an incomplete picture, even just through the lens of weight alone. But age does make a massive difference. In one early study for men aged 20 to 29, the lowest mortality is a BMI of 21. But by age 60 to 69, or the men that were in that age group, the lowest mortality occurs at a BMI of 28. So higher body weight at a younger age is associated with earlier mortality. When older people are sampled, higher weights are not associated with mortality as strongly as they are with younger ages. The trend for weight gain as we age then, which has happened since time immemorial, by the way, means that when BMI stats are reported for adults, there's a significant number of them for whom that higher weight is as low risk as a 20-year-old with a BMI of 23. So essentially, I mean, that may mean that the die is cast early in terms of weight and mortality, and perhaps that only interventions on larger young adults are warranted. That is only then if it can be shown that they make any difference to mortality without causing harm, super important. We have no way of doing that yet. 
And science says it's improbable that we ever will, given how much attention we've paid to trying to help people lose weight. And yet here we are with a collective hand-wringing over high weights at all ages, when really, if you were to take a very honest look at the data, it's those younger age groups that are potentially more affected in their eventual lifespan than older people in large bodies. In any case, it was decided that age didn't matter, thanks to Ansel Keys, um, and that people should try to stay the same weight from ages 20 to 50 with influential scientists, including Ansel Keys, uh, who is also on the record for an extremely negative attitude towards much larger people, by the way. Um, they all argued that this phenomenon shows that there's no disadvantage to being larger at that age. Uh, being larger in general during ageing shouldn't be encouraged because of extra stress it places on the body, particularly on the joints. That this is sort of um, panic about larger bodies and um, based on a you know field opinion rather than what it's saying in the data itself. Ansel Keys also showed that transforming the data from those tables from the life insurance um, studies into BMI also transformed the distribution of variance into a more normal or bell curve distribution, making it easier to analyse statistically, even though in real life, as I said before, it skews to the right in adults as well. The more people are already naturally heavier than ended up being deemed acceptable, even way before the so-called obesity epidemic began. And I can't really stress enough that it was the development of these statistical methods that were really, it's really been used as the tool to use weight against us. John Garrow in the early 1980s pushed for the BMI cutoffs to be set as they are currently and for the normal category instead to be called desirable. Why are the cutoffs where they are? So it was observed that the mortality risk started to rise quickly around the vicinity of the 25 mark and downwards to about the 20 mark. It had a similar risk level, sort of like a little U. And then they thought that a 5 BMI point range looked pretty easy to use. So they just went 30, 35, 40. That is literally it. I have been down the rabbit hole of trying to find out who made the decision when and on what basis those cutoffs were made. And that is, that is how they were made. So massively arbitrary. So they've sliced the risk profile into even slices because it looked good and was easy, not because it was clinically meaningful. Maybe clinical, clinically meaningful for that 20 to 25 BMI. But in all the other BMI category, categories, there's no clinically meaningful reason for them to have been cut exactly where they are, except that humans like round numbers. In the late 1980s, George Bray, who coincidentally founded the International Journal of Obesity in 1977, published his BMI mortality risk chart where the categories were named normal, overweight, moderate obesity, severe obesity, and morbid obesity. They follow the same BMI cutoff points that we use today, except the lower limit to normal was 20, not 18 and a half like it is now. But he, the, interestingly, he called the risk profiles of the category in terms of the risk amount. The normal uh, BMI range was labeled very low risk, the overweight BMI range was labelled low risk. The um, obese BMI was labelled moderate risk and the severe obesity BMI was labelled high risk. And he didn't have a name for the level of risk for people with BMIs above 40. So we can see that early on there was a fair degree of uncertainty about where the delineation between okay and concerning should be. 
But the decision of the WHO in the mid-1990s to officially set their upper limit of normal at 25 pushed the US to lower their threshold, which had been set in 1985, at a BMI of 27.8 in men and 27.3 in women, pushing those down to a BMI of 25 for both men and women um, in uh, the 1990s. So before that, that's what was the standard in in Europe, Um, but... Uh, America's had been a bit higher, so overnight, essentially, uh, a whole heap more Americans were suddenly deemed to be uh, in the obese category, whereas the night before, again, they had gone to sleep in the normal weight category. Using BMI in categories instead of numbers across the spectrum allows a population to be described in terms of categories of prevalence. So essentially, it's easily scaled up for the use in epidemiology, which is fine, although that allowed the argument of an epidemic to be made when changes were observed in the prevalence of higher BMIs in a population. But it's a reflection of this measure back down to individuals and specifically advice to try to modify your own BMI measure, which is highly problematic. The shifting sands of terminology have meant that the category deemed to have the lowest risk of weight-related mortality Uh, has been variously referred to as normal, healthy, ideal, desirable and acceptable. But the next category, which currently has the label of overweight, was first termed low risk by Bray in the 80s. And then in 1997, the International Obesity Task Force began referring to the overweight category as pre-obese. It is utterly presumptuous since most of the people in this category will never go on to achieve an obese categorisation. With BMI and with just weight itself, there's a lot more overlap. People of the same BMI and weight can be objectively very different from one another in strength, body composition, height, health indices, age, like everything is different. Think of a 20-year-old male, let's call him Justin, six foot tall, weighing 180 pounds-ish, all muscle, quite slim build to look at, who surfs every weekend and is a committed vegetarian. He's in the same BMI category as Robert, a 65-year-old, a five foot eight lifetime office worker, never been on a sports field, on a walking track or in a gym in his life, who weighs 70 kilos or 160 pounds and hates veggies, preferring convenience foods and meat-based meals. And Sarah, a 40-year-old mother of three who's recently developed anorexia after postnatal depression and has lost 30 kilos, going from 90 kilos to 60 kilos on a 165 centimetre frame. All of those people have a current BMI of 25. And this lifestyle diversity occurs across the BMI spectrum. By putting BMI above all else, we're vanishing away all the other things that influence health and disease, including the work of the entire professions of dietetics, nutrition and exercise physiology. It only takes the most surface of scratches to see why a focus on BMI is not valid in an individual human, but we're so conditioned to think of it as as being independently important. And it's even mandated into clinical discussions with larger patients that we've ended up overblowing its significance completely. When health behaviours are taken into account, on average, the association between BMI and death is totally demolished. Obviously, again, at an individual level, we have no way of predicting that that person is going to get a specific disease and when. We can only predict at the level of groups. So take a thousand people and we can tell with relatively, relative accuracy how many of them will develop diabetes, heart disease, have strokes, die in a car accident, die from lung cancer, etc. But we can't tell exactly who. And therein lies the rub. No one wants to be that person. And we think we're literally buying time by performing all of these health-related behaviours and being a weight that the doctor wants. 
if everyone performs those health behaviours and even if everyone was able to keep their weight down and if weight control actually did impact on their mortality, we still wouldn't have a disease-free population, not by a long way. People would still die earlier than average and it could still be you, even though you did everything right. So to sum up, the way we got here totally explains the result that we've ended up with. The one ring to rule them all nature of the BMI masks the incredible uncertainty about the nature of the relationship between body weight and, he- and death. BMI was picked because it was good enough, not because it was actually good, and because it is an elegant measure for statistics and epidemiology. As statistics grew, so did the measurement of man. Enough world peace for the proper development of medicine, science, nutrition science and population monitoring, an increase in the prevalence of chronic diseases thanks to that relative prosperity, longevity and capitalism, and a relationship between weight, height and death that on the surface looked like it might threaten progress. However, now that we have the means to dismantle the true plays in the development and management of chronic disease, including the pressures involved with living in a larger body today, a clearer picture of the ineffectiveness and harms that a weight loss focus can have, and multitudes of clever design and medical brains, the time has come to take BMI off its pedestal and do better. So, thanks for listening. Next time, episode four is Weight Bias, Stigma and Discrimination. So it defines the terms, discusses their impact on healthcare, society and the lives of the people who are impacted by weight centrism. See you then. And remember the supporting materials that include the show notes, research links and self-test quiz are available up front for current subscribers, only five bucks a month, which is a total bargain, or can be purchased in a bundle if you're catching up later. See unpackingweightscience.com for details. Have a great day. <laughs>